Welcome to the Best Player Wins podcast, where we believe that winning is winning, no matter by how little or by how much. I'm your host, Nate Endries, co-hosting with Jake Deemer. Welcome, everybody, into episode 13, week 12 of the Best Player Wins fantasy baseball podcast. Jake, how you doing this week? I'm good. I'm good. You sounded a little bit different. Are you okay? Yeah, I just had to clear my throat a little bit. Sorry about that. Uh, this week... We're going to be bringing you guys a little bit of buy or sell breakouts edition in addition to the rest of the weekly content. So let's jump right into it, getting into our prior week recap. Looking back at week 11, Jake, what was your biggest upset? All right, we got to finally give Scott his due. He got the the win over Brendan. Uh, Surprisingly, I think he got the best relief pitcher performance, well, true relief pitcher performance that I can remember seeing out of Brad Hand, who got 42 points. Uh, Scott, I don't think we, I don't think he's totally out of pieces for contenders come the trade deadline. He's got some like Alex Cobb, uh, Brad hand. You've got a couple other guys that I think are, would be just kind of nice complimentary pieces that maybe could be some good deadline targets. And, uh, yeah, Brendan continues to slip his last five weeks. He's finished 12th, 12th, 6th, 9th and 6th in scoring. So, uh, yeah, not good, but credit to Scott. He got his win and, uh, he's not going to be in any, any record books that he he doesn't want to be in, I don't think. Yeah, Jake, I think maybe we should start consulting on who we pick for this biggest upset because I also have Scott versus Brendan. It was clear the day that Scott that Scott joined that he was forced into becoming a seller. There was pretty much no way for him to compete for a title this season, short of going way over the trade limit like Nick and Mike are on their way to doing. Uh, but he has certainly gotten to work in building the team that he hopes will be a force next year and beyond. But as Mike hinted a few weeks ago when he was on with us, Scott is a competitor, and he isn't the kind of guy that's just going to lay down and hand everyone he plays a free win. He's been hungry for a win himself, which would actually mark his first win in the league because, like I mentioned back when Mike was on with us, the only win that Scott's roster had entering this past matchup was one where Bomb was still the team manager. So... Getting a matchup versus a struggling Soto Shuffle roster, Scott was able to seize the moment and not only secure the win for himself, but he actually helped his nephew Mike out by punching Brendan in the mouth and handing him a a zero and two week, which would keep Mike and everyone else in the wildcard race very much in play for a playoff spot. So congratulations to Scott. I'm sure this win over Brendan will be featured someday on Jake's This Week in League History segment to commemorate your very first ever win in the Low Expectations League. Congrats, Scott. Uh, Biggest takeaway, Jake, what did you have coming away from Week 11? Uh, So I have Eddie is creeping back into the wildcard picture. Uh, He's now just one game back of a wildcard spot. He's finished 2-0 for the second straight week this week. And uh, I know we just said he, he got his big win, but... Still not in the upper half of teams. He gets Scott again this week. So making the playoffs does nothing but help, really, because it increases your odds for a higher pick. Maybe if Eddie is able to string together another week or two where he's finishing 2-0, and suddenly he's, he's in the wild card picture. And with the way that things are going for some of the teams that are currently in the playoffs, he might just get in there. Yeah, your biggest takeaway, taking a look at the bottom of the league, my biggest takeaway was actually at the opposite end of the league. It was that the cream continues to rise to the top. Uh, The top four teams in our league seem to be further entrenching themselves in those spots with each passing week. Courtney, Jake, JC, and me went 2-0 this week alongside Eddie, who you were just talking about, who was a pleasant addition to that undefeated group this past week. But looking back over the past six weeks or about, about the past month and a half, those four teams that I just mentioned, Courtney, Jake, JC, and me, have gone 11 and one. That's Courtney's record. Nine and three, which was Jake. Eight and four, that is JC's record. And seven and five, which is my record. And interestingly enough, no other team in the league has managed to go over 500 in that same span. Now, the distinct line between the top two in each division and third place of each division sits at three games today after this past week's matchups. That is, Nick is three games behind JC for second place in the East Division, and Brendan is three games behind me for second place in the West Division. Luckily for those guys and everyone fighting for a playoff spot behind them, there are a few tough matchups between some of us at the top over the next couple weeks with me playing JC and Jake back-to-back 
and Jake playing Courtney and me back to back. So that is my biggest takeaway is that the top few teams in the league kind of are starting to coast off and separate themselves from everyone else that's fighting for that third seed in each division or even a wild card spot below them. But that's a nice segue for us to talk about the wild card race update. So after this past week, in seventh place, we have Big Money Mike with a record of 10 and 12. We have Sam right behind him with the second wild card spot, weak pullout hitter with a record of 8 and 14. But it's a close race for that second wild card spot because in ninth place, we have Jordan, the pretty petite princesses, who he just rebranded his team name. Now that he has Yasmero Petit in his bullpen, he has the same record as Sam with 8 and 14. And then Jerwin is in 10th place, Team Positivity, with a record of 7-15 and 15 after coming off a disappointing 0-2 week, um, kind of ending that hot streak that he was on, that mini hot streak. You can't remember right behind him is Eddie also at 7-15 and 15 now. Yeah, so it's a very close race for that second wildcard spot. Mike has the benefit of a two-game advantage um, from him being in the first wildcard spot to Sam below him in the second spot. But obviously, there's only a one-game difference between our 8th through 11th seeds. So that'll be, again, an interesting race to watch unfold as the season continues. Jake, let's jump into the trades that happened this past week. You're going to hear a lot of Jordan. He basically made his move to sell and did it big this past week with four different trades that he made. So let's jump right into it. The first one was Jordan gave up Max Muncy, Charlie Blackman, and Ryan Presley. And in return, he got from Jerwin, Kyle Tucker, and Michael Kopech. Give me your thoughts on this trade when you saw it go through. Uh, I loved it for Jordan because I didn't think that he'd be able to get a keeper of Kyle Tucker's caliber with the guys that he had left. But uh, credit to him, he was able to put some pieces together to to get a keeper like that. And I, I like this trade for Jordan because I think that I don't think he could have done better than this, really. And uh for Jerwin, if he's able to plug some holes, but I really like Jordan being able to acquire Kyle Tucker. I think he's one of the better keepers that we have in the league. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, I think this is one of those, and I'm and I'm actually impressed with the amount of these caliber trades that we've had in our season so far. But this is one of those trades where both teams got what they were looking for. I think on Jerwin's end, it's a little bit more risky considering he just went zero and two again and is now seven and fifteen. But I don't think it's so risky just because, like we were just talking about, he's only one game back of the wild card, the second wild card spot. So I think he got a more well-rounded team out of this trade by giving up one stud in Tucker, but getting three very good players back in Max Muncy, Charlie Blackman, and Ryan Presley. Uh, so yeah, I like this trade for both sides. Well done by these two. Second trade, another one involving Jordan. He gave up DJ LeMahieu, Charlie Morton, and Robbie Grossman. And in return, he got from Mike, Yuli Gurriel, and Andrew Benintendi. I will just go ahead and say that I think on paper, this trade looks good for both sides. But I am actually going to talk about the risks of both ends of the deal. Um, DJ LeMahieu obviously has not been performing to the standard that he set last year where he was being considered for AL MVP. Charlie Morton has been a little bit up and down this year. And Robbie Grossman, we talked about a few weeks ago when he was involved in another trade. Uh, he's just kind of a wishy-wash player, a waiver wire player, if you will. So I think if you look at it from the, that angle, um, Mike's return is definitely a little bit risky. If you're looking at Jordan's return, Yuli Gurriel, I know that he will come at a, a pretty nice discount relative to what he is performing at this year. But you do have to consider Yuli Gurriel is 37 years old. So unless he's Nelson Cruz, which you don't often see a, an elite 40-year-old hitter, you do have to wonder how much is left in the tank if Yuli Gurriel will be able to replicate this you know, next year when, when Jordan's going to be looking to compete again. So I'm, I don't think it was an uneven trade, but I don't necessarily think that it was a slam dunk for either side. I think that you could potentially see both sides not work out or certainly you could see just one of the two sides not work out, and then it starts to look uneven. Jake, I'll toss it over to you to see what you think about this one. I don't have a whole lot more to add. I, I don't really like Yuli Gurriel as a keeper for next year. I want to say he's a free agent at the end of this year too, so it might be something where there's even more even more unknown added into, added into him. 
but yeah, I, I don't like the idea of even, even if it comes in a very steep discount, I think it's like the 20th or 21st round or something like that, which is a great keep for what he is right now. But I, I have a hard time trusting a 37 year old to do it again next year. Yeah. And it's interesting that you mentioned the contract situation. Cause that was actually when I saw this trade go through the very first thing that I pulled up on my phone to Google search, when is Yuli Gurriel's contract ending with the Astros? And I believe there's a team option for 2022. And I would imagine that unless the Astros are seeing something way drop off at the end of this season, that they would pick that up based on how he's performing this year but certainly nothing is a given. So there is some uncertainty with Yuli Gurriel as a keeper, Uh, but who knows, maybe Jordan will decide to flip him at the deadline. I would definitely say that it is safe to regard Yuli Gurriel as the most performative player in the deal right now. And if it continues to be that way, then he can certainly sell your Yuli Gurriel as a win now piece come deadline day. So it, it doesn't necessarily have to, the, the, the book doesn't have to close on this trade right here for Jordan, but we will move on to his next deal, which was he gave up Pablo Lopez and Taylor Rogers. That is the reliever for the Minnesota twins. And in return, he got from Nick Domingo Herman. Jake, what were your thoughts on this one? I thought it was fine. I don't think Domingo Herman's that great, but the guys that Jordan gave up, that's probably about the caliber of keeper that you would expect to get back. I don't think he could have done much better. Yeah, I actually think I would have preferred to hold Jordan's side in this case. I honestly think I would rather have Pablo Lopez, and I believe it it would be the seventh round that he would be kept in next year than Domingo Herman in, I don't know what it would be, maybe the 16th round or something like that. I think it's later than that, but I'm not positive. Somewhere between 16 and 20, I'm, I'm relatively sure, is where Domingo, Domingo Armand fits into the, to the keeper chart. But I, I don't know. Maybe I'm overlooking just how much of a discount it is. I just have a feeling that Domingo Armand is not going to be a reliable pitcher. I mean, he's not a reliable pitcher right now. I don't expect him to develop into one on a start-by-start basis. Whereas I think Pablo Lopez, 95% of the time, If you're not extremely deep at starting pitcher, you're pretty much setting him in your lineup and forgetting about it. So I think I would rather pay for a pitcher of that caliber where it's set it and forget it in the seventh round, which is still, you know, a decent discount in our league compared to a guy that you might have to play the matchups for 12 to 13 rounds later. So I I think it's fine. I just think I would have preferred to keep Pablo Lopez in that situation, but Next trade, this is Jordan's final trade of the week. He gave up Ramon Laureano and in return got from JC Mark Melanson and Griffin Canning. Jake, what did you make of this one? Uh, so I would I don't I don't think that JC's team got a whole lot better with this one. Uh, Mark Melanson's still he's a pretty good reliever. Griffin Canning doesn't really do a whole lot for me, but I don't I don't think he got a huge upgrade in in Ramon Laureano here. And uh I don't think he. I guess Gomber just went down. He could that went down before, uh, after the trade, though. But Melanson was, was is having a really good year. Uh, Canning is an okay keeper. I I would rather have the side that that Jordan got. Yeah, as would I. And I know we maybe sound a little bit contradictory because Mark Melanson is, I think, thirty six years old himself, and Yuli Gurriel. We were just talking about you don't necessarily want to trust a thirty seven year old, but Ramon Laureano is never going to be. I don't even want to call him like a a good player in our format just because of how often he strikes out. So he may be like a very slightly above replacement level player as a center fielder in our league, but I don't think that you give up a top 10 relief pitcher for that in our league. Um, I know that JC felt that he was deep at relief pitching because he had five guys that were really good and obviously could only start four of them unless he slid Gomber up to the starting pitching slot, which you don't necessarily want to give up that advantage of, of having a spark and getting your, giving yourself an extra start week to week. Um, but I still don't necessarily think that you just sell out on very good depth to get basically anything you can, which I don't know. I kind of felt like that's what this might have been, but it, it certainly came back to hurt JC because I think you just mentioned Austin Gomber got hurt very shortly after this deal. And so the depth 
you know, would have been helpful in that case. And, and JC actually kind of doubled down on dealing from his relief pitching depth in the very next trade. If, if we want to segue into that, which was Mike gave up DJ LeMahieu and Jonathan Loisica and JC gave him Kenley Jansen and Joey Gallo. Jake, I don't know if you have the same opinion of, as me on this one. So I'll actually let you go first here. Yeah. So I prefer the side that JC got in this case, although when we look at it from he already gave up Mark Melanson, his bullpen is taking a pretty big hit here. And those in his case, the relievers that he had were two of the more reliable ones. And suddenly I think that the bullpen is a little suddenly a little, is a little bit shakier now. Uh, I think he needs DJ LeMahieu for sure to rebound for this to be worth it. But it's it, it is a little risky on JC's part to uh, pretty much be dismantling his his bullpen, which was a pretty big strength of his pitching staff. Yeah, and I think that's why um, that's why I'm, I maybe take the other end here is because not so much because of the trade itself, and maybe it's a mistake on my part to be analyzing it apart from the actual players that were swapped. Um, but I'm looking at it more of like as a team manager, if I had JC's roster, you know, he originally sent Alex Reyes to Sam in a really big trade. And Alex Reyes himself is having a great year as a, as the St. Louis Cardinals closer. So he got rid of one guy that was a big piece to his bullpen. Then, as we just talked about, he sent off Mark Melanson, who's having a very good year to Jordan in return for Ramon Luriano. And then Austin Gomber got hurt. And so your depth starts to dwindle even more, even though that's not a piece that was traded. But then he went out and gave up Kenley Jansen, who is himself a very reliable closer and has been for each of the past five years or so. And so now all of a sudden you have JC who has, I think just a Roldis Chapman, I would say is his only super reliable relief pitcher right now. His other guys include the now hurt Austin Gomber, who was very good, but again, hurt, uh, he has Rizal Iglesias, who has been up and down. He just got Jonathan Loisica back in this deal, who's had a good year himself. But again, it's not necessarily the stability of an Aroldis Chapman, a Kenley Jansen, uh, the type of stability that Mark Melanson and Alex Reyes were providing before he sent them out. So it is a risky play for JC. As far as the trade goes itself, I think it was pretty even. DJ LeMay, who is definitely an upgrade from Joey Gallo, whether he rebounds or not, I think that he will be quite a bit better than Joey Gallo just based on their profiles. Um, but then in the same sense, Kenley Jansen is quite of an up, quite a bit of an upgrade over Jonathan Lewisica. So not an uneven trade, but definitely a risky play from JC to basically completely deal away an entire strength of his roster. But Jake, let's talk about some buy or sell looking at breakout hitters and pitchers over the past 30 days. So for the hitters over the past 30 days, Jonathan scope has been the number three overall hitter in the entire league. Cedric Mullins has been the number seven overall hitter. Tommy Pham has been the number nine overall hitter. Brian Reynolds, the number 12 overall hitter and Justin Upton right behind him as the number 13 overall hitter. So definitely some new faces, some new names that we are not accustomed to seeing perform with the best of the best, especially over a month-long period. Uh, Jake, tell me from this list, which breakout hitter are you buying the performance of? And then we're actually going to talk about which one of these guys that you would sell the performance of. Give me your uh, the hitter that you buy the performance of first. All right, so for me, it's this, this is the one that came to mind immediately, which was Tommy Pham. And uh, for me, it's all about the, the plate discipline that he's showing now. He has a career-high walk rate. Uh, both his walk rate and his chase rate are in the 98th percentile or better, which means that he's also not swinging at pitches outside the zone a whole lot. Uh, and on top of that, all of his other metrics look like they're back to where they were when we kind of regarded him as a like a mid-round, maybe fifth-round pick. And uh, – I, I buy the performance. I think he was hurt a lot last year, so he, he saw his stock go way down. But, yeah, I, I think that Tommy Pham is back to being a very startable outfielder in our league. And with his plate discipline, which is the best it's ever been, uh, he has a real, he's a real floor to, to stand on here and be, be kind of a really solid regular going forward, I think, for any team in our league. 
That is Tommy Pham. The hitter that I buy the performance of is is actually right in front of him as number seven is Cedric Mullins. Uh, Cedric Mullins is posting career bests this season in expected batting average, expected slugging percentage, weighted on base average, hard hit percentage, strikeout rate, and walk rate. And while you could certainly argue that it will be harder to sustain this entire plate approach and batted ball profile revamp, I would say that these underlying metrics back the breakout performance as legitimate and indicate an intentional change in approach for Mullins rather than a, you know, quote unquote, lucky for him, everything has gone right scenario. With with a few other guys on this list, their batted ball profiles look very similar to their career averages while their plate discipline has improved over the past month, which it's a good thing, like Jake was just talking about, but it's something that I personally need to see uh, over a stretch that's a little bit longer than 30 days to determine whether it is truly an accentuated skill or if it's just a hot streak. I think to, to comment on the guy that you specifically talked about, Jake, Tommy Pham, he's always had, or at least in the past, he has shown that he could bring a very uh, solid plate discipline or a solid plate approach. So I don't necessarily doubt it from a guy like Tommy Pham, but let me put it this way. You'll hear about why I doubt it for certain hitters when you hear my seller. But Jake, I'll let you go first. Who are you selling from this list? Uh, Jonathan Scope. And I think the simple, the, I guess to oversimplify this, I've seen, we've seen him do this before uh, where he's a very streaky hitter. We kind of know who he is at this point. None of his stat cast numbers really stand out other than the last month. He still hits the ball really hard, but then again, he's kind of always done that. So really, I kind of expect him to just be who he is, which is about a 260 to 265 average, uh, maybe some home run totals in the 20s, and ultimately kind of just a hot hand off the waiver wire. And you're playing that hot hand right now, but like I said, he's a very he's always been a very streaky guy. I don't really see this keeping up. I don't think this is any. I don't think this is the new Jonathan Scope. I think this is just the same Jonathan Scope, but now he's kind of on one of those hot streaks he always has. Yeah, and in a similar vein, I chose a, another guy that's been pretty streaky for most of his career, at least most of his career as of late. My hitter that I would sell the breakout performance of is Justin Upton. Um, he has certainly been hot at the dish over the past 30 days, as all of these guys have, but his underlying metrics for 2021 look nearly identical to the guy that he's always been which is a power hitter that has a lot of swing and miss in his game that can chip in a few steals along the way. The key for Justin Upton over the past month has been the strikeout rate and the walk rate. He has managed to cut down his strikeout rate by about three percentage points while increasing his walk rate by the same amount. And that's certainly a welcome sight. Uh, but as I just mentioned, I'm going to need to see it over a longer stretch than just 30 days to buy the plate approach improvement from a 33-year-old uh, with a career 28% strikeout rate to 10% walk rate. Uh, most of the same things that you said about Jonathan Scope. I think we know who Justin Upton is at this point. He's 33 years old. He is a very streaky hitter. So I think he's a very solid waiver wire option to ride while he's hot right now uh, in a similar vein to Jonathan Scope. But I do not expect you know the way that he's been performing over the past 30 days to hold up rest of season. Breakout pitchers over the past 30 days. We have Chris Bassett, who has been the number two overall starting pitcher. Sean Manaya, who's been the number four overall starting pitcher. Adam Wainwright, who has been number six overall. Austin Gomber, who has been number nine overall. And for the purposes of this segment, we are going to ignore the injury just so that we can get the analysis out there in case he happened to be one of our choices. Um, and then Yusei Kikuchi, who is... He has been the number 15 overall starting pitcher over the past 30 days. Jake, give me the pitcher that you are buying the breakout performance of from this past month. All right. I'm buying the performance from Sean Manaya. Uh, he's just, he's just been fantastic. His start went against the Yankees this past, uh, I think it was Sunday, but he uh, amazingly, he didn't throw a single breaking ball. He only threw uh, sinkers and changeups. And really the biggest thing for me is his velocity is way up from where it was last year. He was about sitting about 90 miles an hour. He was even dipping below that at times this year. He's up all, he's up all the way over 93, which is a huge bump, which is a huge bump. And that's going to do a lot of stuff for you, especially when you have uh, 
the sinker like he does. But yeah, I, I think that I think that this is going to stick the new velocity with the new velocity. I actually expect the, the whip is a little bit high, but I kind of expect that to come down. As we said before, he does a good job of keeping the ball in the yard. I think we said that on a couple podcasts ago. So yeah, I, I buy what Manaya is doing, and I think that he he's kind of I know that he already sort of broke out earlier, but I think this is kind of a little second breakout for him because we sort of thought that we knew who he was, but we didn't really see this second gear coming. But yeah, I think this sticks for him. Yeah, interestingly enough, I decided to buy the breakout performance of Sean Manaya's teammate, Chris Bassett, who is posting career bests in expected batting average against, weighted on base average against, and is nearly matching his career best in expected slugging percentage against. But on top of limiting contact from hitters, Chris Bassett has delivered a career best strikeout percentage and walk percentage this season. Over the last 30 days in particular, Bassett's strikeout to walk rate is 20.5%, which is tied for 23rd best in baseball. And it's also ahead of, in that same span, it's ahead of pitchers like Garrett Cole, Jose Barrios, Trevor Rogers, Trevor Bauer, Walker Bueller, Framber Valdez, and fellow breakout and teammate Sean Manaya. So this skill development Paired with the ability to limit contact is why I am buying the breakout from Chris Bassett. Jake, give me the pitcher that you are selling. Okay, so it, it's going to be – well, it was going to be uh, Dawson Gomber, but I thought I would talk about somebody else because he got hurt. Uh, I don't, it's going to be Adam Wainwright. And the reason is I don't think he's this good, but I do want to appreciate what Adam Wainwright has done so far because he was kind of left for dead as a fantasy asset, and he's kind of showing that – he can be a matchup streamer. Like I would feel comfortable if he was on my bench and I could rotate him in, but I don't think he's a guy that you have to start week in and week out. I think he's more of a matchup play. Uh, he has times when his, he, he throws a curveball and a cutter. And there's been a couple games where the cutter has just gotten crushed. So it's kind of up in the air, whether it shows up or not, whether he has the feel of it for that day. But yeah, I, the way he's pitching right now, you have to stick with it. I just don't expect it to stick but I would feel comfortable kind of having him in my back end rotation where if he has a two start week or maybe a good matchup, I can throw him in and I would feel comfortable doing that. But I don't expect him to be kind of the must start guy that he would, that his stats over the last month would kind of suggest that he is. Yeah. And you shied away from going with Austin Gomber, but he is actually the pitcher that I would sell Uh, injury aside. That is not the reason why I'm selling him. Uh, But I will admit the reason why I am selling him feels a bit lazy because, again, there is just one reason and one reason only that I sell Austin Gomber. It is Coors Field, the home ballpark that he pitches in in Denver, Colorado. The reason why is that there have been three, just three, total Rockies pitchers since 2010 that have sustained set-it-and-forget-it fantasy relevance for an entire season. First was Ubaldo Jimenez in 2010. And then the other two were both in 2018, teammates Kyle Freeland and Herman Marquez. And I think that calling them set it and forget it, even d- during those very good seasons, is generous, considering most of the managers that rostered them back during those seasons likely didn't put them in their lineup every single week without a second thought, especially when they were pitching at home. Uh, there's a saying, Coors Field is undefeated. Uh, and you can kind of you can look at that phrasing now and look at these pictures that I just mentioned and, and see, you know, just ask yourself how highly coveted are Kyle Freeland and Herman Marquez right now in 2021 at just 28 and 26 years old, only being two years removed from very good seasons for Rocky standards. Uh, and if you look at Kyle Freeland specifically, He has negative 28 total points on the fantasy season. So sorry, Austin Gomber. Uh, I certainly think that you can stream him in away matchups, but I do not think that he is the man to defeat cores and be a top pitcher like he has shown over the past month over the length of a full season. So again, in recap, the hitters that we bought, Jake picked Tommy Pham. I picked Cedric Mullins. The hitters that we sold, Jake chose Jonathan Scope. I chose Justin Upton. The pitchers that we are buying are the Oakland Oakland A's teammates, Sean Manaya and Chris Bassett. And the pitchers that we are selling, 
Jake chose Adam Wainwright. I chose Austin Gomber. So that is your buy or sell breakouts edition. Jake, give us your standout player of the week. All right, my standout player of the week this week is Shohei Otani, who got 39.7 points as a hitter. That's good for 6.6 points per game. He had seven hits, six runs, nine RBIs, four walks, seven strikeouts, 25 total bases. And by the way, he also pitched a game, six innings pitched, five hits, one earned run, one walk, five strikeouts, and a win. I think Nate said it in the group chat, and I totally agree. It doesn't matter what anybody else does. If he keeps this up, he should be the AL MVP. Yeah, and that'll be, I don't want to say it'll be a shame, but if we get the first triple crown winner since Miguel Cabrera and Vladimir Guerrero Jr., and it still doesn't come close to winning the MVP award, you got to feel a little bit for Vlad if that ends up happening. But I guess that would also mean that we got to see an entire season's worth of both Vlad and Shohei Otani being awesome. So that would be good for the fans if that were to happen. And I have to say, I'm really sad because I, I saw today that Vladimir Guerrero Jr. came out and said that he will not participate in the home run derby. Man, if baseball, I feel like if baseball really knew what it was doing, it would offer this group of guys whatever money it took to compete all in this year's home run derby. Shohei Otani, Vladdy Jr., Tatis, Acuna. If, you, if we saw all four of those guys competing at Coors Field in the home run derby, that might be the best all-star game event that, that I would ever have seen in my lifetime. Personally, I wish that was happening at least going to be without Vlad. I guess there's not, we're not hopeless for Tatis and Acuna, but I was really hoping to see that as a fan, but yeah, Shohei Otani, Jake's standout player of the week. Let's get into our matchup preview, looking ahead to week 12. Jake, we have a lot of really good matchups this week. I think I actually mentioned this in my notes, but it is an exact repeat of week nine, our interdivision rivalry week where everybody is lining up across from the same seed as them in the other division. That's happening again this week, just by chance. We have a lot of very good matchups. Which one did you say is the best heading into this week? I didn't notice that before. That's actually pretty incredible. Yeah. Wow. I, I was actually going to mention it with the very first, uh, talking point that I had for my pick, but figured I'd lay it out there just in case you didn't know. Who do you got? All right. So I'm going to go with Nate and JC. Uh, I think this is going to be a good one. I actually think this will be the highest scoring matchup of the week. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's going to be two, two, two good teams, uh, high scoring. And yeah, I, I like, I don't know who I like in this one now, but I see you have Max Scherzer in your lineup. He's coming off the injured list. But yeah, I, I, I still actually have not made my pick for this game. Yeah, Max Scherzer, I don't want to, I'm not trying to convince you here, but he is going to be starting tomorrow and then he is supposed to get the start on Sunday. So it should be oh, a two start week interesting. for Max Scherzer. Uh, yeah, I actually chose the same matchup for my best matchup. I mentioned that this is a repeat of our week nine where all of the, you know, the one seeds are playing each other, the two seeds, the three seeds, all the way down. Uh, so because every matchup by definition is good, quote unquote, because it's very even the way that I kind of picked my best matchup this week was I first decided to eliminate any matchup that contained a quote unquote seller. So that took Eddie versus Scott, Jerwin versus Sam and Mike versus Jordan off the table, assuming that Scott, Sam and Jordan would consider themselves sellers at this point. So from there, it was a matter of considering which matchup would be closest between the remaining three. Now, looking at Brendan and Nick's matchup, it seems as though the Soto shuffle is on an absolute pitfall with an absolutely miserable performance this past week being the most recent example of that. So I think Nick will comfortably win that one. And then as far as your matchup with Courtney, Jake, I would normally give you guys the respect that you deserve as best matchup since you are the two best teams right now. But I saw that not only do you have three more starts than Courtney, but you're getting two starts from both Jacob deGrom and Garrett Cole. So it feels like the writing is on the wall for that one. So that kind of just leaves JC and I, which it looks like he's going to get seven starts and I will get eight. It also looks like both of our offenses have been pretty good as of late. So it was extremely difficult for me to pick a winner in this 
one. Stay tuned. Uh, but I expect this one to be very good. The best of the week, you might say. Jake, what is your thing to watch for this coming week? All right, so my thing to watch for is more potential pitcher injuries, and I'm actually really worried about this because the points that Glass now made, it did sound, it did come off like he was whining, but they were kind of legit. And without having any substance at all, a lot of these guys, you got to think, have been using a lot of this stuff since they've been in high school. And I I know I've texted a couple people this, but there is a reason that young players aren't really allowed to throw breaking pitches, and that's because they put a lot of stress on your elbows. Like there's a, there's an age where you're allowed to throw a breaking pitch and kid pitch. You're not allowed before that age. And the reason is because they want to protect these kids elbows, but what the, what the substances do, they allow the, they allow the, these pitchers to get to not have to grip the ball so hard, which when they're throwing will lessen the stress on the elbow. Now these guys to get the same spin, they, they have to grip the ball harder. They have to, and a, a couple of guys have talked about this. That is going to put more stress on your elbow. And uh, on top of that, you're also going to have to, you might have to change mechanics. You might have to do all this other stuff. And when you're having to change a lot of things in a short amount of time, when you're a pitcher, that's never good. What they're doing is already not natural. It's already putting a lot of stress on your elbow, your shoulder, and now having to change it up like this is only going to get worse. I'm actually really worried about how this is going to affect the league as a whole with uh, pitcher injuries. I've, I've seen on Twitter talk swirling that, you know, the analyst community is also worried about pitcher injuries starting to pile up. And, and Scott White, who I know both of you and I look up to as a fantasy analyst that we like and respect, he made it a point that we are just past the 60 game mark, which was the entire season in 2020. And we would probably consider the amount of pitching injuries so far to be a lot, but right now is, is really where the test begins for these guys, right? Because nobody, unless you were a playoff team, which was only, you know, a handful of teams got to get a volume that was higher than 60 games last year for pitchers. And so this is kind of the real test for who's going to be able to hold up and avoid injury. Uh, you know, we've had a lot of injuries so far, but this, this is just the beginning is what, Scott White and a few other analysts are suggesting. So I would agree there. Be on the yeah, lookout. I'm, I'm for these very concerned about this. Yeah. Hopefully the, the, the elbow grim reaper does not come for you or I, or I guess anybody too harshly in particular. I think, it, I think you're right though. I think we're going to continue to see an alarming rate of injuries just due to the nature of the increased workload from last year to this year. My thing to watch for is Courtney making her first trade. So as Jake relayed, Courtney has made zero trades this season, which is four less than Jerowin, who has made the second fewest in the league. But uh, as if you look at Courtney's team, after clearing 300 points easily in two of our first four matchups, she has only been able to put up 300 points just one time in the last seven weeks. Uh, while failing to reach the 300-point threshold may seem a little nitpicky, Courtney is a top-two team in the league and knows that it will take consistently dominant weeks to topple the other top teams, especially as we get closer to playoffs at season's end. I think that she's going to look to capitalize on her stable roster pretty soon rather than waiting too long until an area of need crops up, especially right now since she's now without Mike Trout and Alex Bregman for at least a month. I don't foresee her letting herself get too thin before she makes her first move. So that is my thing to watch for. Matchup predictions. Uh, after this past week, my prediction record is 36 and 18. Jake, you were, you are now 29 and 19. It was a pretty spicy week. I think two of the three or the, the three upsets that I predicted happened, and I only was let down by my older brother Nick. And I texted him to let him know, like, hey, you let me down. I was trying to have a big week there. I'm sure he was devastated by that. Yeah, I think he was probably more upset that he let me down than he was about actually losing the week. But I'll be surprised, whereas last week I think we had three different matchups that we chose differently on. I think I just have a gut feeling that we're going to choose all six matchups the exact same way. And I feel... 
pretty confident that if there was ever a week that I would predict that we would go six and zero, assuming you have all the same matchup picks that I do, I think it's this week. I feel pretty good about about the picks that I made. So first matchup, Jake, we have number one contender versus JC hashtag fifty dollars by twenty twenty three. Who do you have winning this one? This was the closest one and definitely the toughest to pick, but I think seeing that Scherzer, you're going to get two starts out of him. I think that's going to sway me. I'm going to pick Nate. I'm also going with number one contender in this matchup. I think that this is going to be really close and certainly the only one that I don't feel like is close to a sure thing. So JC could definitely pull this off, but I'm going to, I'm going to pick my team in this one. Second matchup we have, Pine Run Market versus the Soto Shuffle. I already pretty much gave away my pick for this one. I think Nick is going to win comfortably. Jake, what is your thought on this matchup? I agree. I, I need to see it from Brendan before before I pick him. He's on he's on quite the skid right now. He certainly is. And our next matchup, Scott, I know he's coming off of his first win in the league, but I don't think that that high is going to last him very long because Eddie is – on a roll right now. And I think that that role continues versus Scott's team. I have gone forever winning this one, Jake, what do you have? Yeah. I'm liking Eddie as maybe like a late season Cinderella team. Maybe he sneaks into the playoffs. Yeah. I like that. We've been talking about Jerwin, but Jerwin is, is kind of keeping the door open to Eddie coming right behind him to, to jump everybody for potentially a second wild card spot. Our second wild card spot holder currently is in this next matchup, Sam versus Jerwin himself. We got weak pullout hitter versus team positivity. Uh, I know that he he's currently sitting ahead of Jerwin in the standings, but I do have Jerry pulling this one. Uh, team positivity is my winner. What do you have? Yeah, I, I mean, at least on paper, I don't think Jerwin's team kind of, I think he's he's maybe a tier above this this wild card class that's here. I think I'd he'd be in the same breath as someone like Mike. So I'm going to pick Jerwin. Yep. And then in the next matchup of the juggernauts, Jake's fantasy baseball team versus team C Deemer. Jake, I don't think I've ever heard you pick against yourself when you have your best two guys going twice. And that is what is going on this week with arguably the number one and the number two pitchers in all of baseball, Jacob DeGrom and Garrett Cole, each making two starts I have you winning this matchup as comfortably as you possibly could over a team like Courtney's. What's your take on the matchup? I had DeGrom going twice last time and I still lost, but if it's not going to happen this week, I just don't think it's going to happen, but I have confidence that this is, this is the week. So Jake's got himself in that matchup. And in our last matchup of the week, the pretty petite princesses versus big money, Mike Jordan versus Mike in this matchup. I have Mike winning this one after Jordan basically sold off all of his competitive pieces this past week. Who do you have winning this? Yeah, this is going to be a really boring week, I guess, because I have Mike as well. Well, it's nice to know that you won't be able to catch up to me at all. But again, I think it was it's it's really it's a really interesting week because we have all of the the seeds from each division playing the opposite of them in the other division. So you would think it should be a very close week, but it also just feels like based on the way that teams are slumping or on hot streaks or how the starts stack up against one and one another in the matchups themselves, it feels like almost this was the easiest week to pick the winners of for our matchup prediction segment so far. That's how it felt for me, but so I'm I'm looking for a six and a week. I guess that would mean you are also looking for a six and a week, Jake. See if it happens. Get to our around the league portion of the podcast. Jake, take it away with your league history fact of the week. So my league history fact of the week this week is we have had 12 keepers so far that have graduated and have been three-year keepers, but there have only been two that have been kept by the same team every year. And those are Trevor Bauer and Jose Ramirez, they were both drafted by JC and kept by JC all three years of their, all three years they were eligible. I think, not to spoil on your fact of the week, Jake, but I think you might have shared that before, maybe just in passing at the very beginning of the season, or maybe on one of your first like league history facts of the week. But that is really interesting. JC likes to, 
keep his guys homegrown. And it's really no surprise because I know JC's kind of busted out of his shell a little bit this year and made more trades than we are accustomed to with him. But typically he's on the lower end in terms of quantity of trades made over an entire season. So that's it's not very surprising. But yeah, interesting. Trevor Bauer, Jose Ramirez, the only true homegrown all three-year keepers that we've seen so far, both from JC. Yeah, if I, I could actually add to that as well, because Trevor Bauer was kept uh, in 2018. He was originally drafted, but JC actually had him the year before that. So there has, there has actually never been a single week where Trevor Bauer has not been on JC's team. That's great. That's that's an even more interesting league history fact. I love it. Yeah, in all the years we have played, Trevor Bauer has been the only franchise staple, per se, that has stayed on one team the entire time. We'll see if JC changes that this year. I doubt it, but maybe. Maybe next year he gets drafted to a different team, too, or maybe JC reaches for him to, to keep it going five years strong. But that brings us to week seven of Jordy of the General Sportsbook. So welcome to that portion of the podcast. Take it away, Jordan. What is up, everyone? We're back for another week of the sports book. Last week was fantastic. For the first time ever, actually, we had three favorites cover and three matchups hit the over. So as the, uh, as the creator of the sports book, I like to see that it's starting to get a little bit even um, and the unders aren't dominating or one favorite or one underdog isn't dominating. So I'm excited for this week and excited for this to continue to get better. First matchup I'm going to look at is Mike minus 52 against me, the uh, pretty petite princesses. Total 497 points. We know how much I don't like Mike on this segment. My arch rival, he cost me my 500 a week on my locks, but I love him here. My newly rebranded team will struggle. Mike looking to rebound after a couple weeks of struggling. I think he covers 52 pretty easily here, although it is a pretty large, uh, large spread. I also have uh, my stay away game of the week. Jake minus 25 against Courtney. The, the uh, Deemers clashing once again, total 545 points. Um, once again, we have Jake favored in this matchup, actually a lot bigger than their week nine matchup, with, which was just around four or five points. Um, Jake did not cover in that one. He actually lost outright as well. So surprised to see the, uh, the big spread here. These um, two powerhouse teams also have a pretty low, uh, low total points for projected. Their last one was in the uh, 570s. So I don't really like this either way. I feel like it should go over. But uh, I'm not gonna not gonna make a pick here. I just don't feel good about this, so I'm staying away from this one. Um, gonna get into my locks real quick. I uh, I went four and one last week. Shout out the median. I I feel like I disrespect the median on this one on this segment a lot. Um, it covered um, for the second time all season. It covered pretty easily this week, which is good to see. Um, unfortunately, it cost me the five and zero record, which I came with last week. If you don't remember, I won five and zero. Um, but that still improves my record to 34 and 16. Um, I, you know, I do want to shout out Jake Deemer as he texted me and I have the receipts cause I don't delete texts, uh, that he hopes I go own five. Um, so I'm sorry that I'm too good for you, Jake, but that's not going to happen. I'm going to go five and zero again this week. And, um, I hope that, I hope that Courtney covers this week to, uh, to hurt Jake's uh, percentages. But anyway, let's get into it. Favorite, Jerwin, minus 18 against Sam. The positive vibes seem to have died last week. Jerwin putting up one of his worst showings of the season, if not the entire season, scoring 183 points. Um, but it won't, it, won't, it won't stay for long. Just a little blip in the radar. Jerwin covers this pretty easily, I think. Underdog, for the last... Uh, Two weeks in a row. I feel like I always pick Nick's matchup. I have Brendan plus 33. It's been a staple on my um, on this segment to pick uh, Nick's matchup for the underdog portion. I loved Nick as an underdog, but he's been bad as a favorite. Losing uh, two, two in a row as a favorite. He's now 0-2 all-time as a favorite. So we have to go with Brendan here until Nick can prove otherwise. Um, I have an, my over. Eddie versus Scott. 
Um, Eddie, Eddie seems like he's hitting his stride. He's had two really good finishes in a row. Um, Scott with the first cover with the first outright win. 4-11 here seems like a pretty low total. I think both of these teams can get over uh, 200 points. Um, however, in their Week 9 matchup, they only scored 370. So uh, I think that they're going to make a big jump here, though. Under, Justin and Nate. Um, before last week, the last time that both of these teams finished above the median was week six. So you had to go a couple weeks in a row here. Under 579 here seems to be the move, as these are the two highest projected teams um, for this week. Um, I think this is going to be an easy under here. I think, you know, I've said it before, I respect both of these teams and think that they're good, but um, seems like they never can put a good week together. So I'm interested to see if they can both do that this week as the highest scoring matchup by quite a bit. The median, I said it before, we disrespected on the show. However, for the first time ever, I am taking the median over. 249 points, I think. Um, I think it's going to go over here. I think that the uh, we're beginning to see a little shift here where the median has consistently been getting a little bit higher. Um, minus a couple of weeks ago when there weren't just a lot of games being played, so a lot, a lot of pitchers didn't go. But love the over here. Take it. It's going to hit, I believe, in the over. All right. Uh, going to come back 5-0. Shout out, Jake. Uh, back to you guys. That was Jordy the General's weekly sports book. Thank you, Jordan. Let's move on to news and notes. Jake, this is a pretty quick episode. I like it for a change. Let's start off with the biggest piece of news in baseball this week. Wonder Franco got the call. The reigning number one prospect in baseball since the graduation of Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is expected to make his major league debut with the Tampa Bay Rays tomorrow on Tuesday. First question I have for you, Jake, what position is he going to play? Uh, so I think he, the plan is to play him at shortstop, but he is he's not regarded as an elite defender, whereas uh, is his name Wall or Wallace? What is, I don't remember his last name. It's Taylor, a guy Wallace. Just, Taylor Wallace. Yeah, they just brought him up. He is an elite defender. Uh, so they might elect to leave him at short. Brandon Lau was able to be moved to the outfield he is, and first base, and the Rays do like to move guys around. I could see them having Franco either at third base or second base. I know that he got innings in both spots in the minors. Yeah. I only saw in passing today and I don't even think where I saw it was like a reputable source, but I just saw on Twitter that somebody thought the plan was to have him play third base initially. So I guess be on the lookout for that. Do you think that he ends up gaining multi-position eligibility regardless of where he plays tomorrow in his debut game? Uh, I think so, because the Rays do like to move guys around. And if Franco can do that, I think that they'll they'll do that. They like to mix and match quite a bit over there. Next question I have for you, which I guess it, it won't necessarily be that important to Scott since he is pretty comfortably out of the playoff race at this point. But how big of an impact do you expect Franco to make this season in 2021? Uh, considering how prospects have gone so far, my expectations are definitely lower than what they would have been in the past. But if there was one prospect to do it and actually be an impact player right from the go, Franco would have been my pick all day, even over, even over Jared Kalenic and anyone else. And a lot of that has to do with his plate discipline. It's, it's something that, like I said before, Prospects generally struggle a lot in that area when they first come up and Franco has already got an elite eye. And that's, that seems like that's kind of uh, what translates to early success a lot better. Like you look at guys like Jordan Alvarez and Juan Soto, and I'm not saying he's going to be on that level, but those are two guys that showed elite plate discipline in the minors before they came up. And that was kind of a big part of their profile and that helped them help translate to success right away. I think that's a big hurdle to clear is not striking out too much. And Franco already seems like he has a pretty elite eye. So I think that if there is a guy who's going to do it, it's, it's going to be Franco. And for that reason, I'm, I'm definitely more excited about him than I was about some other prospects that have come up. Yeah, those are good thoughts. Uh, next question kind of relates to the last. If you had to bet all your money, on which year will be the very first 
that wonder shows that he is an Acuna level, Tatis level, Vlad level, Otani level superstar, which year would you say is going to be the first year that he shows it over the course of the entire season? Uh, I'll play it safe and say next year's the year for, for Franco to really break out. I don't even know if that's playing it safe because that's that's aggressive. He gets one cup of coffee in the majors for two months, and then the very next year he takes off and he's a top five player in baseball because that's what those guys that I just named are. Uh, yeah, I would say I don't I don't know because he he is he is kind of one of the unicorns where you don't expect him to. He may not be a superstar at first, but you certainly don't expect him to struggle given the plate approach. So I will say, I'll say this is the year. I'm going to give Scott a reason to be excited and say that he is going to be everything that we expect and be the guy if it ever comes. Because that's actually my next question, Jake. What are the odds that he never becomes that superstar level player? Well, I would say that the odds are pretty high that he never becomes that superstar level player just because the odds are really high with any of these top guys that they never reach that level. There's not many players that do. Yes, but let me put it this way. There's been three prospects that I've heard the term generational talent be thrown out while they are still prospects. So, I mean, now you can say in retrospect... Tatis, Acuna, Soto, they're generational talents, right? But they weren't considered that when they were prospects before they made their major league debut. The three guys that I have heard the term generational talent thrown out before they ever even took an at-bat in major league baseball. One, Bryce Harper. Two, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Three, Wonder Franco. Now, that's certainly a small sample size, and it's certainly... Um, only looking at recent baseball history, but that's only when I've been paying attention to baseball. But the, the first two have definitely hit. Bryce Harper was paid $330 million. Safe to say baseball feels that he is a generational talent. What Vlad is doing right now, you can't consider anything other than a generational talent. So, so far in terms of our baseball fandom, the generational talent term thrown around to the two guys that have graduated from being a prospect the hit rate is 100 percent. so i don't want to say like wonder is a lock to become a superstar but based on recent history the two guys that you know scouts all over baseball were saying this guy is going to be a superstar they were 100 percent right about i know it took vlad two years to get there but they ended up being right about it so that's why i say Uh, maybe the odds aren't higher that he doesn't become a superstar than the odds that he does. I don't know. I wanted to get your thoughts on that. I guess you're still in the camp of being a little bit risk averse and saying that we shouldn't expect, even though he he is very talented, that he's going to be a superstar for sure. Yeah, I guess like I'm, I I think that you can't consider him a lock. Like I, I think that these guys at the, at their level, like if, Bronco comes out this year, the rest of this year, and he hits like 270, 350, 400. And that's, that would be his triple slash. I think that a lot of people would consider that a disappointment, but it's, I don't, I, I wouldn't, I think that that's a very good rookie season. Oh yeah. But for Franco, I, like I said, I, I think that he's a lot safer than a lot of these other guys. Like if we're comparing him to any of the other recent prospects that have come up or even guys like, uh, Julio Rodriguez in the minors, I think he has a much safer floor to be a very to be a very high level player than any of those guys, just because of his his plate discipline is so advanced, and there's there's just not a lot of holes in his game. Like if there's if there's one guy that like he he's the guy that gets compared to like the Soto at his age, where the plate discipline was so far ahead of everybody else, the hit tool was was so far ahead of everybody else and so advanced for his age. And I, I, I just, I think I see, I see a lot of that with, with Franco where he can be that elite guy who is successful right away, but I'm, it's still, I'm still not going to bet on it because hitting in the major leagues is very hard to do. Not a lot of guys can do it. Yeah. And this may be a very bold take, 
but the player that I have heard thrown around on numerous occasions as being the comp for what we could expect Wonder Franco's floor to be, not his ceiling, but his floor, is Alex Bregman. What are your thoughts on that? I, th- I think that even though that's a very bold comp to say that at his worst, this is who Wonder Franco will be, I actually th- I think that's pretty accurate. Alex Bregman would be Wonder Franco's floor performance as a player. Yeah, are we talking like his peak, or are we talking right away? At his peak, yeah. Yeah, Not I, like I like this that, season. Yeah, I like that comp a lot, actually. I, I, I think that might be a little bit, dare I say, too low, because I think that he might be able to have, like, Bregman's batting average, I believe, is, I think he has a better, he's going to have a better hit tool than Bregman does. Bregman's plate discipline is outstanding, but and his power... I think that if, if Wander doesn't develop the power that he, that we kind of think that he will, because he, right now he doesn't have, he's, he hasn't really shown that game power where we would consider it elite, but they think that the skills are there for him to kind of develop that. I think if he doesn't really develop it all the way, he's kind of where Bregman is. And I'm talking like non juice ball uh, assisted Alex Bregman, where he's kind of in his home runs are kind of in the twenties instead of the up, up in the thirties. But yeah, I, I like that comp though. I, I think that the maybe the he would have a little bit of a better hit tool than Bregman does. But yeah, I, I like that as a I like that as his floor at his peak. Yeah, and it's it's really bold to say because Bregman is a very good player. I mean, he was especially very good when the ball was juiced and he was hitting over thirty home runs. But even in the dead ball era, so to speak, Alex Bregman is still a very good player. So it's High praise for Wonder Franco to suggest that his worst case scenario would be a very good player, but I th- I think it's accurate to say that I I do believe that the worst case scenario for Wonder Franco is that he is just simply a good Major League Baseball player. Um, so I think that suggests uh, high praise and a very bright future for him. And for Scott as his as the as the manager that's going to be owning him over the next couple of years, so should be excited if you're Scott. Should be excited if you're a fan of baseball to watch this kid. But funny enough, that'll transition us into our final piece of news, which is about Alex Bregman. He was placed on the injured list with a hamstring strain, and Astros manager Dusty Baker says that it's at least a grade one strain, but he isn't sure of the precise severity is confident that the Astros will be without Bregman for a while. So Jake with Bregman out and her only reinforcement and Josh Donaldson dealing with his chronic calf issues right now, do you think Courtney will deal for a third baseman or will she play the waiver wire with a guy who was just dropped like a Eugenio Suarez? I think she should deal for a third baseman because it's, I don't think you want to rely on Josh Donaldson being your only guy. He's, he's probably going to, there's more, more likely than not, he's going to be out <laughs> with his calf because it's been bothering him for a couple of years now. I don't know if that's what she will do, but I think that's what she should do. And uh, I mean, I know that she's been trying. She hasn't made one, made a trade happen yet, but I know that she's tried a couple and just hasn't worked out. But yeah, I, I think that she maybe should press the issue now with Bregman being out potentially long term because when the, I when I saw Dusty Baker and even Alex Bregman himself talk about it, uh, they didn't sound very confident this was not going to be a long term absence. Yeah, and and looking past just Courtney's roster and kind of getting back to what we were briefly talking about earlier, looking beyond Alex Bregman, how confident are you at this point in linking the insane amount of injuries we've seen this year on both sides of the ball to an irregular 2020 season in which only 60 games were played, which is basically one-third of the typical workload of an MLB season. So kind of separating the issue of the foreign substance ban, which may be playing a part into pitcher injuries, how much of the injuries on both sides of the ball are you attributing to the shortened season in 2020 alone as a factor contributing to injuries this year, Jake? Yeah, I I think this is, I think this is the explanation because this is as with injuries on both sides. Like you said, this is as bad as I ever remember it being. Like I'm, I was looking at mine. I had all my a couple weeks ago. Anyways, I had all of my IL spots filled, and I had a couple guys on my bench that were on the IL. And normally that situation would be like, man, I'm just getting killed. But then I looked at some of the other rosters, like, well, this isn't that bad. 
compared to some of the other guys, but right. it, this is as bad as I can remember it being. And I, I think with the, it's, it might only get worse with the, so I think we we're in, we're in for some pitcher injuries coming up here pretty soon. Yeah. We only just crossed the proverbial finish line of what would have been the end to the 2020 season. Like I said earlier with teams just having crossed that 60 game threshold. So this is theoretically just the beginning of the unknown voyage of the increased workload from 2020 to 2021. And Jake, I know this is a little bit impromptu, but based on how the rest of this season goes, would you go as far as considering a rule change to the number of IR spots that we have? Would you potentially consider an increase or maybe even going to unlimited IR spots if the rest of the year unfolds similarly to how it has already just in the first third of the season. I don't know about unlimited, but maybe giving us one or two more. And yeah, I mean, maybe hopefully this is only a one year thing where we have to deal with this, but for pitchers, it, it might be a multi-year thing because you, you got to build up over, over a couple years. So for pitchers, I'm a little bit worried for maybe the next, maybe this year and potentially next year, but yeah, I would definitely consider maybe adding an, an IR spot or two. Just if if it if it continues to be this bad or gets worse, which it looks like it is, unfortunately. Yeah, I think you would. I think you'd have to because it's everybody's kind of in this roster crunch where they all have at least four guys that are hurt, and now we got a couple IL spots that IL guys that are spilling onto the bench, and yeah, it's just not fun. Not fun. Yeah, I haven't done much perusing around other people's rosters, but I've had at least four guys on the injured list for, I want to say, the entire last month. It has been at least. So I'm dealing with it. Jake, you mentioned you're dealing with it. I'm positive that we have at least four to five other teams that have dealt with it throughout this season so far. So maybe it'll be time to consider a fifth IR spot or a sixth IR spot or Definitely something to think about as we approach the rest of the season. But that brings us to an end of episode 13 of our Best Player Wins Fantasy Baseball podcast. Thanks for listening to us this week and every week. We will look to see you guys on the next episode. Yeah.